Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. There are two scripture lessons before you printed there in your order of worship. Both, of course, will be on the screen as well. Uh, or if you are a third grader with a new Bible, you might turn there in the Bible. First uh, Timothy 1, 12 through 19. That, of course, is a small book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. We're going to begin with verse 12 in First Timothy chapter 1, and then we'll read also from Luke's gospel, some teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 15. So hear these words of scripture. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason I received mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. I'm giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. For by rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. And then today from Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, Jesus, The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures, and let us say together, Amen. Will you join me in a spirit of prayer? Holy God, as we worship this morning, as we pray with thanksgiving in our hearts, we are mindful of all the ways in which you have blessed our lives, including the blessing that is calling us forth to worship together today. As we look around this room, as we see the faces of third graders, as we celebrate with their families, as we think about our own spiritual life and the ways in which your grace has come to us since even our childhood, we are reminded of your goodness and love. God, once again, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us in the reading and sharing of Scripture. Perhaps speak through my words today, perhaps in spite of my words, that these, your people, would hear your voice this morning. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you know the old saying, the old television show, kids ask the darndest questions. 
Here at the church, we might rephrase that. Uh, Kids and youth, not just the darndest questions, but some of the toughest questions. Uh, We're in the middle of Connect Wednesday. We've had three Wednesdays now. I've been working with the youth on Wednesday nights. We're doing a Bible study of Acts, about a chapter a week. I've been with them a few weeks. Chase is doing the adult Bible study on Acts as well. I think they're making a little better time than we are. We're going a little slower. This week we were reading from Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 3, Peter begins to preach with the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, in Acts 1, Jesus is ascended. In Acts 2, we have Pentecost. And then in Acts 3, the church begins to take shape, begins to take form. And Peter preaches to the people about how God worked through Abram, who became Abraham, and the people of Israel, and how that work has come to fruition in Jesus and his death and resurrection so that the world might be saved, so that all the families of the earth might be blessed. This is sort of the the whole key to the New Testament, right? How does the Old Testament work, connect to Jesus, and who's going to be saved here and now, right? So this is a big, big important point we were sort of chewing on here. And so you can see their wheels beginning to spin, and and Bennett Hobbs asked asked this wonderful question. Bennett Hobbs, he says, uh, well, do you think then that some people are more important to God than others? Do you think some people are more important to God than others? That's a really good question, right? Because what he was talking about was Abram, who became Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and now Peter and Paul, people who have this unique responsibility, this unique calling. Does that make them more important to God? Of course, we agree that we probably wouldn't say it that way. It's not like some people are more important to God than others, but some people are given a particularly important task, a particular calling. And then as we were talking more about Jesus and his death and resurrection, uh, Jack Branch said, do you think when Jesus died... It made God sad. You think when Jesus died, it made God sad? That's a really good question. Because underneath that question are are all sorts of questions about the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the agony that Jesus experienced on the cross and yet the victory, the way in which Jesus' death was vindicated in the resurrection and how did that grief, how was that grief experienced by God's own self? That's a really huge question. There are Big, big books written trying to answer that question. Sometimes our youth ask really hard questions, really good questions, because they are in the beginning stages of wrestling with their faith. Perhaps some questions that we've given up on are just now coming to light for them. You have probably heard the title of this book, Letters to a Young Poet. This was a book that was uh, put together in the early 1900s. One poet writing to another, one older poet, these are German poets, writing to another. Their letters were later collected and put together as a book. Reich is the older poet writing to the younger Kappas. And it's kind of an interesting book, and particularly that title has been used and reused, Letters to a Young Poet in this case, or Letters to a Young Other Person. And in that book, the older poet writing to the younger poet is talking about how to live into this life of art and this life of questions. And this quote is the one that's often lifted from the book. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything, live the questions, and perhaps then you will gradually, without noticing, live along some distant day into the answer. That's a really nice way of saying, right, that some of the questions we might have are hard questions, difficult questions that are not easily answered, and they're certainly not easily answered in our our younger years. And so it takes some time to live into the questions 
and then maybe one day we might live into the answers. I tried to say something like that to Bennett and Jack on Wednesday night, not near that poetic and probably not near as helpful, but encouraging them, inviting them to continue to think those hard thoughts and to wrestle with these concepts in Scripture and our faith. Live into the questions. And one day you might come to live into the answers. Letters to a young poet. We have a lot of historical examples. We have some examples in literature where we have an older uh, figure, an older authority figure, someone with some wisdom and years and experience writing to the younger person and giving them instruction about their life and encouragement about how they might live. Letters to a young poet is just one example. And today we read that sort of genre, that sort of literature from 1 Timothy. Now, just remind you a little bit of what's going on in the New Testament. Of course, you're familiar with what we often call the Pauline epistles, right? Pauline meaning authored by Paul, the Apostle Paul. Epistles meaning letters, right? And so we have these letters by Paul written to churches that fill up the, the back half of our New Testament. So letters like Romans and First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, those are all letters written to a particular church, and they are named after the community in which that church exists. So Rome, Colossa, Corinth, and so on. But we have a few other letters in the New Testament as well, where Paul is not writing to just a community, but, but more specifically an individual person. And those letters are First and Second Timothy and Titus. And in these letters, we hear a little bit of a different tone. It's less Paul instructing the entire community about their challenges and the ways in which they can live into their future. And it's Paul writing to a particular individual. And of course, today we're reading from the book of 1 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy. Now, if you've had a chance to do a little bit of Bible study or if you have like a reference Bible that you've read some of the notes in, you would find that there are lots of questions surrounding 1 and 2 Timothy. The date that it was written, the location in which they were written, some of those details that we get in those other Pauline letters, we don't necessarily get in these letters to Timothy. And because the details are a little less fuzzy, I mean a little more fuzzy, sometimes these scriptures are studied less. They get less attention because the details are less concrete. But I think for our purposes, they're just as interesting, they're just as useful, and just as important. They're certainly part of our Bible and part of our Holy Scriptures. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at First and Second Timothy the older Paul writing to his younger disciple. So let's talk a little bit about that context. Paul, of course, we know a lot about his ministry from the book of Acts and from the letters that he wrote. We know that he came from a, a very different background, right? He was Saul. He was a, a persecutor of Christians. He was converted by the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus, right? He was blinded, and then he was receiving his sight again, and his name was changed from Saul to Paul. And so he has a a really miraculous testimony, and he, he, he comes out of that moment sort of inspired and, and lives his life fully committed to spreading the gospel of Jesus, the good news that Jesus' death and resurrection is for the sake of the salvation of the world. And so Paul goes on missionary journeys. You can read the book of Acts to kind of put his biography together, where Paul has been, the churches that he's visited, and you can read his letters and sort of put together a, a kind of an image of his life and how he worked. And apparently during that time, he came to acquire, right, some, some other disciples like Timothy, younger people who he had commissioned and whom he had charged to go out and to carry on the work that Paul had been doing. In particular, it says in First and Second Timothy that, that Timothy was to go to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, the church that's referred to in Ephesians, to help care for the church and to help guide its teaching. And so when we read First and Second Timothy, probably what we ought to think of is Paul being later in his life, 
later in his career, a lot of ministry experience and hard-won wisdom, writing to the younger Timothy, a younger disciple, a younger leader in the church, offering some instruction and guidance, some encouragement about how he might live. So what did we read today? Well, you might think when Paul writes to Timothy that he would offer essentially his, his resume, right? I, Paul, writing to you, Timothy, my child in the faith, here is my resume. Here's all the things that I've done. Here's how you should, you should follow me. You should work like me. Here's the best case scenario for being involved in ministry and working with these churches. But notice as I was reading, and you've got the words there in front of you, notice that Paul sort of takes the opposite approach. Instead of leading with his resume and his strengths and his, his celebrating his own life and work, he sort of begins with all of his failures. Right? As Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Look at me, Timothy. Look at who I am. I was a, a persecutor of the church. I was a person of, of violence. I did terrible and awful things. And yet by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, God has called me and set me apart for this work in ministry. And Paul goes on to describe himself as the, the foremost sinner, the chief among sinners. And yet God has saved me. And because God has saved me and because God can use me, then surely God can use you as well. It's a pretty nifty rhetorical move here by Paul because we might think that Paul would offer this encouragement, this wisdom, this guidance as a sort of how-to manual. Well, here's how you ought to be. But instead what Paul does is he, he begins in humility. Timothy, look at me and all the ways in which I came up short, and yet God chose to use me. Surely God can use you as well. And so Paul here offers us some sort of insight that that our leadership and ministry, our, our life in serving Jesus, it doesn't necessarily begin with our strengths. It doesn't necessarily begin with our gifts or our graces. It doesn't necessarily begin with the things we think we're best at. The way in which we follow Jesus and the way in which we share the good news of Jesus often kind of centers around our shortcomings, our failures and our sins and our brokenness. Because it's in the places where we kind of come up the most short, it's in the places where we are the most uh, inadequate ourselves, that is where God's grace and God's goodness really shines through. And so Paul tells Timothy, right, in, in this life of following Jesus, this actually isn't about how good you are or how great you could be. It's about how, God, how good God is and how despite your shortcomings and failures, God can work through you, use you. God can save you. You all are quite familiar, I'm sure, with the show The Office. Uh, of course, The Office came out when I was in college, and I've seen every episode dozens, if not hundreds of times, right, on replay and streaming. Michael Scott is the boss in The Office. He's goofy and funny and terribly awkward. Uh, there in the middle seasons, he thinks he's interviewing for a promotion. If you've seen the show, you know this scene well. And so he goes to David Wallace's office in New York, and David Wallace asks him, he says, what do you think are your, your greatest strengths as a manager? And Michael says, well, why don't I tell you my greatest weaknesses? And David says, okay, well, tell me your greatest weaknesses. He says, well, I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I get too invested in my job. Right? That's really funny, right, his greatest weaknesses. And he says, well, my greatest weaknesses are, in fact, my greatest strengths. And it's a funny scene, but it sort of captures the kind of human condition that most of us live with. We find it incredibly hard to name our weaknesses or our failures. 
It's much easier to name the things that we're good at to celebrate ourselves. Self-sufficient, strong, wise, hard worker. Here are all the things that are great about me. And yet when Paul writes to Timothy, he begins with all the ways in which he's failed. All of his shortcomings. I've been uh, reading a new book called uh, Low Anthropology written by this pastor named David Zoll. It's a, it's a great book. It's really, uh, it's really nifty the way in which he tries to get us to rethink to rethink how we think about ourselves. All right? So anthropology is the way we think about human and the human condition, humanity and how it's organized. And a high anthropology would be to, to celebrate the goodness of humanity and all that we can do and all that we can, comp- and a, can accomplish. But what he argues for in the book is actually a low anthropology. To see ourselves with a sense of humility. To acknowledge all the things that are malformed about us, the ways in which we hurt one another, the ways in which we hurt ourselves. To see ourselves with some spiritual maturity and some meekness. And by having a low anthropology, we actually lower our expectations about ourselves. Then we might be able to see how God is at work within us. He tells in that book a number of stories, one of which from his pastoral ministry, he talks about a young woman named Ashley, probably not her real name, but he tells the story of Ashley. She's kind of a troubled child from a troubled home, becomes a troubled teen. She's in and out of their church. He has a relationship with her, but it's always a rocky relationship. She's always finding herself in difficult circumstances. She grows up to be a single mother of two children and then finds herself at a court date for a DUI and The pastor, David Zoll, goes with her for her DUI. And there the judge rules that instead of jail time, she can go to group therapy. And so this young woman, she's read a hard life. She's kind of hard-edged. She's kind of difficult. She's assigned to group therapy. And and David tells in the story that he thinks this is just going to be a disaster, right? Like she doesn't like anyone. She's kind of difficult to deal with. There's no way in which going to group therapy is going to go well for her. And in fact, when she gets there, She finds these people that look very different than her, that act very different than her, but accept her for who she is. And so Pastor Zoll, he talks to her, and and she gives him this quote. She says, I don't think I've ever felt so understood. What we have in common in that room is a wake of broken promises and bad decisions. I don't have to edit my story or worry about impressing anyone. It's such a relief, and I look forward to attending every week. There's something sort of relieving and life-giving about acknowledging the ways in which we're not perfect. Not just our successes and strengths, not just our victories, but our failures. And then when we can see ourselves in that light, we can also see how God has saved us and might use us. Whenever I was finishing college and thinking a lot about my own personal life and its future, I will just confess with you today and share a little bit of my personal testimony. I was really torn about what to do with Christianity. I grew up in a church, grew up in a Methodist church. I knew a lot about the church and about the faith. Of course, I also understood some things about math and science, and my my brain had had grown to be uh, really uh, confounded about how to sort all of that out. Some of the same questions our youth were asking. What do we do with all these things that are going on in the world and how do we understand God's work in them? Can we really believe the tenets of Christianity? Are they really true? At that time, I stumbled onto a book called Letters to a Young Doubter written by William Sloan Coffin. He's a preacher at the Yale Divinity School. And 
In this book, Sloan Coffin writes in a similar way of, of 1 Timothy, or letters to a young poet. He writes to an imaginary young person who's struggling with their faith, and he sort of outlines some of the ways that you can wrestle with those questions and yet still believe. And that was incredibly helpful to me as a young person. At the end of the book, uh, Coffin offers this sort of tenet. Easter represents a demand as well as a promise, a demand not that we sympathize with the crucified Christ, but that we pledge our loyalty to the risen one. I don't see how you can proclaim allegiance to the risen Lord and then allow life to lull you to sleep, to smother you in convention, or to choke you with success. I wasn't just reading that book in that moment, but it was in other moments like that where it sort of clicked for me that there were only two options. I either had to give up on Christianity altogether and walk away and live my best life on my own, or I had to go all in and commit myself to this risen Lord because this is the most true and the most important thing. And for me, that was the decision, right? Like this quote says, to follow Jesus, right? The one who is risen so that my life is not lulled to sleep in other ways. And yet, even today, I would tell you that that sort of that sort of concern around doubt and fear, how can I believe all this, do I really believe all this, that still sort of weighs on me. It's always sort of lurking. And so I give thanks that God continues to call me and sustain me and give me faith because it's not some sort of inner strength that I have on my own, but it's God's work in my life. I want to tell you today as we begin to read First and Second Timothy together, I want to remind you that Paul's kind of tenet in this letter and in these letters and his sort of mission statement, his, his theory, uh, is that God doesn't necessarily need more perfect people. And so Paul tells Timothy, look at me and look at all of my failures and shortcomings, and yet God has saved me and used me. Timothy, surely there are some things about you that are not perfect. You're young, you're unsure of yourself, you're maybe immature in the faith, and yet it's because of those things that God can use you. And so that tenet kind of extends all the way to us here today, right? Each of us come in this room and come to worship with all sorts of baggage. We tend to put our best foot forward, our resume, our strengths, but where God is actually at work in our life is in our weaknesses and our failures. And if we could sort of tell the whole story about our lives, not just our best moments, not just our resumes, but if we could tell the whole story about our lives, even the hardest times, and how God sustained us, well, then we might be put to use by God to share that good news. This is how God works in the world, in ministry, in the church, and in our lives. It's not our our strengths, but in fact our weaknesses that God uses so that others might come to know Jesus too. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for your love and grace revealed in our lives. God, none of us are worthy. We have all fallen short in so many ways. And yet it's in our sins and our failures, it's in our doubts and our fears where you have saved and sustained us. God, give us the strength to tell the story of our lives, to see us, see ourselves as we truly are, so that we could see your love revealed in us as well. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.